Talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Good company and civilized debate with a premium on fun. Ross Cameron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, apologies for the uh, shambles that the Ross Cameron show has been this evening. Uh, Hopefully it's about to take a significant step up uh, with my next guest, who is indeed a returning uh, guest, a bit of a favorite of the Ross Cameron show audience. I was going to say that for about 100 years between from the 1850s to the 1950s, there was a, a magazine called published called Boys Own, and it was sort of boys, a magazine for preteen, teenage boys, and it was a collection of adventure stories of boys sort of hurling themselves out upon the world, taking risks, doing daring things, uh, joining a foreign uh, French foreign legion or attempting to build a rocket ship to go to the moon or you know uh, mine underneath the earth and it was about sort of camping and racing and guns and bombs and uh, winning over the baddies and if I think of one Australian who sort of comes to my mind when I think about that boy's own tradition it is a lawyer, a former soldier, adventurer, a mercenary, um, British military officer, Oxford graduate, raconteur, a man about town, uh, and now convicted. Uh, David McBride, welcome back to the Ross Cameron Show. Thank you, Ross. Likewise, I see you as a kindred spirit. A uh, man who uh, swims against the tide. <laughs> Bit of that. It uh, doesn't um doesn't uh, and damn the uh, damn the torpedoes. Yes, I uh, I love and so yes, it's a, it's a it's an equal aberration club. I love going on your show. Always well, thank you. Laugh. You're not yeah, afraid very good. Of, um, uh, opinions that are not popular with other people, but they're always well thought out. And, um, yeah, you'd be the sort of person I, I'd want by my side in a, in a tight spot. <laughs> well, what a beautiful compliment. Flattery will get you everywhere on the Ross Cameron Show. Um, well, look, it's been a pretty massive week for you. Uh, I mean, if I just give, you've you've had both the, you've, you've had talk about peaks and valleys. Um, you've lost a trial despite, uh, you know, I think quite beautiful and broad-spectrum expressions of public and private support for your cause, Uh, you know, there was a powerful um, appeal for the Attorney General to intervene, as he had done on a previous somewhat similar fact situation, and with instruct the withdrawal of the prosecution in your case uh in the same week uh that did not succeed the case proceeded your defense according to the saturday paper yesterday's edition pretty much on the front page uh we've got 
McBride's War by Chris Wallace. The centrepiece of David McBride's defence collapsed in just three days, putting an end to what was widely expected to be a three-week criminal trial of a high-profile whistleblower in the ACT Supreme Court. The legal counsel for the former Australian Army lawyer had hoped to focus on whether a duty to protect the public interest coexists with a soldier's duty to follow orders. But Steve, but despite the strenuous efforts of your counsel, Stephen Odgers SC, uh, Supreme Court Judge David Mossop ruled it had no foundation in law. Why don't you give, I, I appreciate when you're sort of fresh out of these proceedings. I don't know if there's an appeal planned or not planned. The last thing I want to do is to get you into trouble with the court or courts that are hearing your cause. What can you tell our audience about Dave McBride's last week in court? Well, it's, a lot of it is all about a character, and um, I try to do the best in that regard and and I'm still a lawyer and I will I will won't say anything um negative against the court that uh, the judge was fair he made his he was fair from the beginning because both sides and as were the prosecutors they we agreed that this was the key question what was a soldier's duty it was actually in the charges or the main charges and uh, it was a very uh, professional agreement to say, look, let's let's fight this one out first before we go and do anything else. Um, and uh, the judge agreed, even though it was slightly unusual. And um, so credit to him in that regard. And then he uh, he found against us and uh, said there is, a, as the prosecution argued, there is no scope at all. Um, for doing uh, for doing anything other than than, than your orders, and um, I always knew that without that, we didn't really have a defence, um, or you know, or possibly saying that you know you have to work out that there's whether you have to follow legal orders, but whether it was legal anyway. Stephen Hodges. Uh, who was made for this? He's an expert. He's an expert, really, in the law, the the workings of the the uh, the statutes, etc. He written a book on evidence for the past twenty years, and um, uh, and he really impressed me. He went, to, he took it quite hard because I wanted someone to talk about big issues and talk about Nuremberg, which he did. He didn't shy away from that, and to say, you know, we all know that just following orders is not is not a good enough excuse to doing the wrong thing and um uh all i all i could ask for him is to put it bravely and then when it went against us and the judge said i'm against you um and we uh we appealed immediately and again i was very happy very proud of him and we got the chief judge and for an appeal so early they have to do something called you have to get leave to appeal so they don't they don't look at the full question but they just look at whether or not the initial judge the supreme court judge david moss whether or not his ruling was i think the, the expression that they use is obviously wrong and they decided it wasn't obviously wrong so uh we they downed us again twice in two days 
And uh, even though, I'd be, because I've been fighting this for 10 years and, and, and uh, you can't see your, well, I wouldn't say it's completely over, but, um, uh, you know, your dreams uh, kind of go up in smoke. So it took me a day to sink in, but I realised that if, if there really is no other duty uh, to Australia and they tried, I thought was quite a good attack. They said, when you swear on your oath on the Bible, when you join and you say, I'm going to uphold the laws of the, the, the country or whatever, um, it actually says I'm going to, you know, protect Queen Elizabeth II or did when I swore on. And um, they said that doesn't really mean anything, which I think is interesting, but they said that just means you're going to follow orders. And, uh, but it was, I achieved something, and when I verbalised it to you, because we did actually consider those big questions. Who do we swear to? Do we swear to Australia or do we swear to our immediate supervisor? And um, even though the questions didn't come out the way I wanted, I, I was, I was, I thought it was very healthy for the country that we had that debate. Um, and again, I, uh, I, I credit to the, uh, I always, you know, as you said, it is a little bit contentious talking about these cases, but the, I thought the prosecutor handled it well um, and the judge handled it well. And once, once, they, once we decided that there was nowhere to go in that regard, I said, look, I'll plead guilty. And I got up there and I, I stood and gave a loud voice and said, guilty, guilty, guilty. And at least they could have probably locked me away then. And to the judge's credit and to the prosecutor's credit, they said, no, we'll let him keep him on bail and we'll, we'll, we'll look. I guess that, that had some indication that they at least, at least I was honest to say that I thought I was doing the right thing. I had a genuine belief that I was following the law. And once that was clearly taken away from us by both the judge and the appeal court judge, um, I was you know, I wasn't happy to plead guilty, but I could see that that was the right thing to do. So, um, yes, I don't think I'm going to say anything that uh, that's going to offend the, the judges. I'm not saying that they're wrong or anything like that. They, uh, they, uh, he's the judge, and he called it, and uh, it, it was, and his judge was, his judgment was upheld on appeal. So, uh, and I have respect for that, and the, um, so. We are going to appeal probably that because we think it, that it has, it obviously has important implications for the country. And this is really at the heart of my whole case to say, um, do public servants in this country, do we work for Australia or do we just work for the government? Um, and while that sounds uh, like a little bit of a fine difference. Of course, if you're in government, you've been in government, it, it, it's it's increasingly easy to sort of get the department that you head to to sort of work for your re-election rather than necessarily working for the country. And I think that question needs to be to be looked at. Um, we probably will lose again. My council doesn't really necessarily think we're going to win because it's it's one of those hard questions where they think whichever judges look at it, they think, shit, what will be the implications? Um, you know, we don't want every every public servant saying, oh, well, I don't think this is right for the country, in my opinion, or whatever. Um, we need to have some sort of a sensible thing where the country can still go on. Um, but on the other hand, it's not such an easy question to answer. On the other hand, where you've got 
at the moment, worst case scenario, and you have to look at these questions with the extreme examples, they were saying if someone gets ordered not to give uh, documents to the enemy, you know, obviously they're not meant to do it. But that was an unfair um, example in my case because I, I would counter to say if the, if the chief of the defence force or the minister uh, commits a crime and you've got um, – uh, and that could be it could be significant. It could be murders. It might not be by the people at the top, but someone commits murders and it's in a document. And um, at the moment, even if it is about murder, even if even if it's like the chief of defence force doing deals with the Chinese or whoever our traditional enemy or whoever our, our whoever you see our enemies being, you at the moment the way the law is, you would not be able to take evidence of that. Um, uh to anyone i mean it covered the media in my case but it wasn't necessarily against the media you couldn't you couldn't tell anyone about it and so it has it re it requires an enormous amount of trust in those at the top of our security services and ADF. and that that can be okay and this that circular comes back down to my case to say if we are going to trust those at the top of our uh, ADF and the um, the security services with that much power, they've got to be really good. I mean, they we do have to have some sort of safeguard to make sure that they are not doing things for self-interest and they are really doing things for the country. And um, I guess that's the perfect scenario, but we don't need whistleblowers. Um, but we do need to make sure that the people at the top, when they take their oath that they really mean it and they are saying that they are going to work for Australia and they're not going to work for their own uh, promotion or election or whatever and with the resources that they have at their disposal. And I guess as a nation, if we can look at that to say, who do people work for and how do we keep them honest? Look, the whistleblower option seems to be closed, but we need to be able to keep people at the top honest. I don't mean in, in small ways. I mean in the fact that they are working in the big ways um, to do what they're meant to be doing uh, in relation to whatever department uh, they wield. And um, I didn't think that was the case in Afghanistan. I thought the, the war was increasingly used um, to win votes. We were losing the war. We pretended we were winning it. Uh, we gave medals to people who didn't deserve it, and we also scapegoated people that didn't deserve to be uh, railroaded. Now... That it's not so much about the, the last war, it's about the next war. Uh, and we need to make sure if we're going to go into a, an existential war um, in the next 10 years, uh, we need to make sure that those people running that war uh, know what they're doing and are not doing anything for um, appearances uh, and are all doing it all uh, for the long-term benefit of our children, and I guess, and their children. So, I mean, look, it, it, your case and the idea of the whistleblower, you know, does, I think, raise uh, some uh, difficult questions, and I won't tell you that I find it a lay-down Nazaire. Um, I entirely agree with your analysis uh, of the... Uh, war in Afghanistan, which just became part, in my judgment, of this sort of US uh, Anglosphere NATO doctrine of permanent war. 
were there for 20 years. A lot of people got killed. Uh, we walked out having not moved the dial one degree. I seem to recall we left about $60 billion worth of weapons behind, uh, including the sort of faciometric details of the several hundred Afghans who had cooperated with us, handing them over to the Taliban, virtually gift-wrapped uh, on the way out of a rapid, messy and poorly planned uh, evacuation. Wouldn't surprise me at all in the midst of that uh, theatre context to see all sorts of unconscionable and potentially unlawful uh, activity taking place at the senior levels of government. Um, very hard to know. I mean, you've published a book. Who's your publisher? Is it Penguin? Did I? I'm trying to remember. Penguin, yeah, Penguin Random House. And um happy with it. That's selling well. I mean, that's every cloud has a silver lining. And um I'm hoping uh here it is behind me. I'm hoping that we can get uh get some good sales before uh Christmas. It's um uh, because yeah, I do set out what drove me in that, and 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 slowly, it's not necessarily what people think. As I said, I think in fact the last time uh, I was on your show, someone uh, was my legal team. They were so happy the way I explained it. They said that that's that's the best explanation you ever given when you were on Ross Cameron's show. And I was like, yeah, I'd say well, I actually started with SAS people getting what I thought was being railroaded and scapegoated and I couldn't work out why. Um, and I, uh, I I said to this guy who was going to be charged with murder or he said, look, it's political bullshit and, and you're being used because the, the political, the winds have changed and they now want scapegoats and I'm afraid you're the one. And he looked at me and he was like, well, isn't it your job to do something about it? And at first I was quite defensive going, well, I've done my best. I've been fighting against the rules of engagement changes. I've been fighting against this, been fighting against that. You know, what you want me to give blood? And then I thought, after a few seconds, I thought, well, he's actually absolutely right. You're you're the right position, and, the, and you're the right person. If anyone's going to take this up, you know, it needs to be you. I've been quite philosophical about it now, as you said. It's almost just like another uh, boy's own adventure, and probably a bit like you. Um, when I was thinking about going on the show tonight, you know, if there's a choice of two things that are going to happen in my life, um, it's usually the one that's going to make the better story that turns out. <laughs> so now I'm facing uh, I'm facing prison, and that will be another another story um, uh, for the grandchildren. <laughs> do we have a do, do, do we have an indication? I mean, I don't want to. Uh, Perhaps uh, his honour on sentencing, uh, you know, I, I presume there's quite a spectrum of possible results yeah, following admission of guilt to five offences. Yeah, there is, and again, to to his honour's credit, he was he was he was very um, gentleman that way. He said, "Look, I'll get him assessed for a uh, an intensive corrective order, which is." Which is the which is good of him because that's considering the maximum was like a hundred years or something. Um, intensive correction order is sort of something where you, it's like a sort of you know home de home detention sort of thing. I think mm. I think you do mm. 
you work, work for the a bit like my ancestors, the convicts. I might be make yes. make roads or something, chipping yes. away with a uh, <laughs> chipping away with a chisel. I'd be happy. I've got a few friends down in Canberra. I'd be happy to go and make some stone fences for them. <laughs> where, where, I mean, your your old man was a very famous uh, specialist. Did did but you have convict ancestry is that right the mcbrides yeah, yeah. i looked into it my I, we had a crazy like most people i had a crazy auntie betty who was a school teacher and a chain smoker uh all her life and she researched the family history no one really wanted to know too much in those days um but there in my father's line there was a strong line of convicts there were double convicts that, that came out uh, male and female that got married and they had a daughter um, and that daughter married um, the son of another convict pair. And um, they weren't, they didn't steal a loaf of bread to survive. Uh, those first ancestors were professional criminals. <laughs> they deserved whatever they got. Yeah, they deserved that he, um, you get, England being such a beautifully well organized place, you could actually get the, the transcripts from their hearings. And, um, Really, uh, it's quite funny reading this guy's conviction at the Old Bailey because he's he brings in two alibi witnesses. It was an armed robbery of a uh, a postman with three of them, and um, and he had a two alibi witnesses to say, "Oh, he he wasn't there. He was with us that day. He was he was having tea with us. It was a rainy day, uh, and he was tap tap tapping on his shoes." The second witness comes and tells the same story. And um, and Hannah Carr, I can even remember their names. And then the uh, the prosecutor um, asks them a whole lot of questions, doing what they do even today. Sort of says, "You remember it well? Oh, yes, I remember it very well." And, and he sort of closes the gates and he establishes that they've they, they seem to remember every detail, especially that the the robbery happened on the fifth of November, and they're sure my ancestor, Mister Freeman, he wasn't definitely at home on the fifth of November all day. And then the prosecutor says, um, one last question. What what day of the week was the 5th of November? And they can't answer it. <laughs> and it just says after that, verdict, guilty, sentence, death. <laughs> wow. But he, um, is it, I don't know whether there were some reforming politicians at the time who, uh, who were, I guess, getting their stomach. There were a lot of people getting executed. And they had them all out on prison hulks, um, floating in the Thames and off 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 Liverpool. And uh, they decided to send them to uh, the new colony. To um, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of good coverage. They would have gone to America, but the, after the War of Revolution over there, they they stopped taking British convicts. So uh, yeah, he went out and he survived the trip. Um, his wife to be survived the trip, and she had she she went out on the all female convict ship with a. Um, uh, with a babe, with a newborn from a different husband, um, she must have been a teenager at the time. And uh, she, uh, yes, yeah, so she, they were obviously pretty tough people. The man did ten years of hard labour. He only got one in trouble once for insubordination. And then he was given a ticket of leave, and he went to work on a dairy up near Newcastle in New South Wales. He was as the sort of supervisor, and um, and then uh, the female got out on the convict ship and she was set up to work on the dairy as well and, the, and they met, fell in love, married and they had 10 more children. 
Um, wow. They met the bush And what was, may I ask, David, would you know, do you recall what was her offence? Yeah. At first I like to think, because she was quite young and, and she came out with a baby. So in my romantic imagination, I thought that she must have got um, knocked up by the Lord of the Manor. She was a scullery maid and it was all totally, she was totally innocent. But I looked into it a bit more. <laughs> We had to change the first draft of the book because that wasn't the truth at all. She was, um, she had a partner in crime who was this charming, uh, charming man who, who was known as the sort of king thief of Liverpool. And um, they used to work as a sort of husband and wife team on the on and off the field. And they'd trick, um, trick maids from the big properties to give them a key. I think he used to make the maids fall in love with them and they'd get the key to the house when everyone was out. They'd ransack the house and they take the uh, they take everything they could carry out to the pawnbroker, and she got caught at the pawnbroker with a, with the, with the stolen key, and uh, the stolen goods, and it was her second offence. <laughs> she had a, she'd also had a baby by this guy who was such a famous thief. He uh, he was even made the local newspapers. <laughs> he was well known. So yeah, she was no. Um, she was no angel, but she seemed to have uh, gone straight. When, when she was about 90 when she died and she was like a local identity in the Newcastle area, and in the eight, late 1800s they did an interview with her for the local paper and they asked her about the highlights of her life um, coming out as a convict. And, and one of the things that she said, the highlights, was when uh, the local bush rangers, some people called the Jewboy Gang, came to stay. It sounded like something out of a novel. And they came to stay one night and um, all they wanted was fresh horses. They were on the run from the, the police. And she said, oh, it was very exciting and, you know, I liked having them there. And um, one of them tried to make advances on me and one of the other bush rangers pulled a pistol on him and then my husband came home and then the bush rangers took our horses and, and yet, true to their word, uh, they returned them just as they said they would, you know, after they'd used them. They were all caught and hung a few months or weeks later. So yeah. it was tough times, but she she recounted that, although it was the most exciting time of her life. So <laughs> she was obviously a bit of a live wire and she she was only five foot tall and she uh she uh she made she hand sewed all the clothes and everything. And you, when you read all the family histories on ancestry.com, some of the grandkids didn't like her because they reckoned she was an old bat who uh who was always giving them work to do. They always had to chop wood, clean, sew. <laughs> and people couldn't keep up with her. She was one of these sort of women uh, who had enormous stores of energy and expected everyone else to have the, the same. So, uh, yeah, she's a pretty remarkable character, old Mary Ann Smith. And, uh, and what uh, year would she have arrived in Australia? 1831. Yeah. And the husband got there about 10 years early. So he was just... He was just being released when she got there as a sort of teenager. And um, was he, I don't, I presume he was not a McBride. What, he was a Freeman, no. The McBrides didn't come till later. Um, one of the uh, one of the McBrides married one of their ancestors, yeah. Um, the Freemans became the Tafes, became uh, the Griffiths, and then a McBride, but when the McBrides were Irish immigrants, we didn't know too much about them. My grand great grandfather McBride died um, when my father was young. He was in, he had a news agency, and he used to uh, 
in those days it was you delivered the uh, the newspapers uh, with a draft horse around the uh, around the suburb and it was during the first world war and he used to have to pick up those big sort of bundles of newspapers he was very strong apparently and he'd um he said it was very uh a, a, an unpleasant task because sometimes people didn't know whether their sons had been killed until they read it in the newspaper mm. Mm. and uh so he'd, he'd drop the papers off and then he'd hear crying and wailing as he as he rode the horse off but they get really affected him um my and uh his own his own son went off to the first world war who returned uh, my grandfather and never spoke about it he was just a stretcher bearer over there and uh he got some shrapnel and he's on the western front and he got some had to go to a military hospital for a few months but then he went back to the western front um his brother was there as well my great uncle my great uncle got sort of shell shock and um and they uh put him out and uh he, he spent the rest of his life on a small farm i think uh he was they uh they sort of thought he was they sort of hid him away i think he was an alcoholic in those days they just put you on put you out in the stick somewhere and drink yourself and, and milk the cows or something but my grandfather seemed to come through quite well he he, he was never bitter he never spoke about it um but he was never bitter and he, he just tended to his roses in the in the sort of outskirts of uh sydney um his wife had a lot of mental health issues my grandmother uh so much so that um she came from the convict line she was the one that came from the convicts and uh uh her mother had died at, at birth and she didn't even know and, and until years later when some one of her cousins said to her oh you that's that woman is not your mother your mother's dead wow which might of one course might have some, some sort of draw but I don't know but when my father was growing up my grandmother um she was admitted to mental hospitals a few times so much so that she couldn't look after him and he had to go to the country to live with his um uh his cousins uh who were dairy farmers in, uh, again up near Newcastle a place called Dungog and he loved it up there and he saw it all very romantically funnily enough and uh I guess his father was a war veteran and his mother had mental health issues life at home probably wasn't that good um he liked um he, he fell in love with this he went to one of those little tiny schools where they have all the years in the one room and um but then he got an in, he, he passed his entrance into a uh a selective school and in uh banks down boys high or I think whatever it was called uh, and then um uh he got a scholarship to Sydney University and that's one of the reasons I'm always very grateful to this country that if my family had a life in this country they never would have had anywhere else they had opportunities my mother as well got a scholarship to Sydney University and they were both the first people in their families to get to university and um I, I like to remember that you know that we've had great opportunities I mean the a few generations before them they couldn't even write let alone go to university so uh that um this country um you know uh, it has given us everything and uh that's one of the reasons I think I feel uh you know I feel the weight of my ancestors and I feel like you've got to sort of do do the right thing by a country country's he's done the right thing by us it's been um it's been a terrific place to grow up well look your book is called a question of honor it's almost an antique word um honor 
I seldom find it used uh, unironically uh, in conversation, um, yet it seems to have been, uh, you know, a bit of a feature of your story. I think a perhaps uh, a preoccupation with satisfying the demands of honour uh, might be one of the sort of uh, streams of unbroken uh, consciousness in your life story. Uh, I mean, you might tell it a different way, but as we um, prepare to return you to the solitude of Sunday evening and a contemplation of what may uh, or may not lay ahead, uh, tell us, give us the pitch for honour to a somewhat jaded sort of post-millennial TikTok generation? I think a lot of it is your conscience. And when I was seeing a a psychologist when I was fighting with the Defence Force, um, I was quite surprised when she said to me, I'm interested in evolutionary uh, uh, psychology and why, why men are programmed the way we are, why women are programmed the way they are. Uh, while we while we seek for certain things um, and how far back things go, how much is related to our cavemen ancestors. But I was quite surprised that um, shame or you know or guilt. We know that the, we all know that obviously anger and happiness are sort of primary uh, emotions, but um, and sadness, but. Uh, Guilt is apparently a primary emotion which we are hardwired um, to feel, and you th- which is kind of funny. And in some ways, if you want to be philosophical, and in your show we can talk about that, it does make you wonder whether that's that's some sort of evidence of some sort of higher power to say why why would we have guilt if we're all just about survival. Um, you wouldn't have such a thing in your brain. Uh, but we do seem to have some sort of a feeling of uh, we shouldn't have done that, whether it's got to do with other people or um, uh, some sort of divine blueprint that we have inside about, about behaving in the right way. And I try to make this clear in my book. I'm, I'm hardly an angel by any means, but I, I do believe in relation to military matters and when you're fighting for your country or working for your country that you do have some sort of um, some sort of line about what is what is right and what is not right I think as a young officer um, that was really the one thing that you were meant to do when I was in the Sandhurst military college Sandhurst in the late 1980s and early 90s, which seems like a long time ago for a lot of people, but not for us, but um, you, you, the motto was serve to lead. And it was all about the young officer. The only thing he had to do, he couldn't shoot better than the soldiers. He couldn't, he couldn't march better. He couldn't drive a tank better. But the one thing uh, he had to do was to make decisions. And if the shit ever hit the fan, he was the one that had to stand up. Um, and it's easier said than done, but that I guess is kind of one of them. And the hard, it, it, it's easy to stand up when you've got everybody behind you saying that's right. The hard time to stand up is when uh, nobody is really with you, and you have to say, "Well, I think this is right." Um, 
And you know, sometimes you're not even entirely sure yourself, but you have to yeah. say, you know, it's 50, 51 to 49% in my own brain, which means that's a pass. Uh, that means that I have to, uh, I have to kind of do this. And of course, you know, part of my story is a fair bit of second guessing it myself, but you, you've got to be able to see, um, you've got to be able to sort out the imposter of doubt where you are just actually fearful. And you try to say to yourself, well, maybe maybe this is right. not the right decision. You've got to work out what's actually fear telling you not to do it and what yeah. is what is a genuine doubt. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to wind it up there. Uh, we've had the benefit of David McBride, rabble rouser. Um, he's a uh, a man of, of conscience, uh, flawed, I suppose, uh, like the rest of us, but... He's had a red-hot go. Uh, he's just pled guilty to five offences in the ACT Supreme Court, maybe facing a custodial sentence, we hope. Uh, early indications are that uh, there may be a different outcome. We, we, we can only hope. Our thoughts are with you, and um, we want to thank you for living an original life. Uh, you're an inspiration uh thanks very much david mcbride thank you ross thanks for having me on and uh, i was this is the first interview i've given since the verdict and um and i i couldn't there's no one i would have rather speak to than you so thank you thanks so much you sweet sweet man love it uh we'll have you back uh as soon as we can you're on the ross cameron show we'll be right back after this break TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. Israel rescued a female member of the IDF who was kidnapped by Hamas. And the media interpreted that or put that out accidentally on purpose as she was released. Now, what does that mean? That means that the good people of Hamas released another hostage. It took Dana Perino on the five on Fox to actually say and indict her own network, who when they went live to their guy in Israel, also used the word released. And when they finally came back to Dana to talk about everything, she said, I just want to say something. She said earlier today, Israel rescued that female soldier. And we made a mistake too. We said she was released. She wasn't released. And she went into the whole thing about how that just props up Hamas. I mean, how could journalists, quote unquote, not know the freaking difference between rescued and released? Steve Malzberg on TNT Radio. I'm Cal Fire Battalion Chief Isaac Sanchez. And normally we like to provide you with tips on how to keep yourselves and your family safe during wildfires. But given the historic impacts that the weather has had on our state this year, we would like to provide you with tips on how to keep yourself safe during extreme weather. If you reside in an area susceptible to flooding, please take the necessary steps to prepare to evacuate if advised. Make sure you've identified at least two exit routes out of your neighborhood as one of them may be blocked or flooded. As the weather develops, remember to check in on vulnerable neighbors and family members. They may need additional time to prepare for evacuation. And just like during a wildfire, if you feel unsafe, please evacuate. You don't have to wait for the order to come. Keep an emergency go bag ready in case you need to evacuate. And always remember to plan for the safety of your pets as well. If you must leave, never drive around roadblocks. It can take as little as 12 inches of water to sweep your vehicle away. And always remember the mantra, turn around, don't drown. Be aware of first responders working in highly impacted areas, especially on the roads. For additional safety tips and updates on CAL FIRE activities, follow us on social media or visit fire.ca.gov.
today's News Talk Radio. Now we're talking. TNT. Welcome back here on the Ross Cameron Show. And uh, we're about to be joined by Dr. David Richards. He's an Australian general practitioner and adjunct professor in a faculty of medicine at an Australian university. He graduated from London University. You'll hear some sort of pommy uh, twang in his vowels, uh, but did an honours degree in human genetics and immunology. So he's not the sort of dumbest bloke in the room, um, but he's also spent the last couple of days at a conference organised by Australians for Science and Freedom, which gathered together quite a constellation of uh, stars, in my opinion, uh, including uh, Dr. Richards, who addressed the concilium. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ross. Uh, welcome to be uh, Glad to be here. Well, look, um, why don't we start with, um, why don't you just put this conference uh, in a bit of context for us? We did have the benefit of Dr. Gigi Foster, or Professor Gigi Foster on the Ross Cameron Show a couple of weeks ago, where she adumbrated this uh, great event. Um, tell us, give us your explanation to someone who knows nothing about it. Uh, what were you caves doing together over the weekend? Well, I, we got together over the lockdown periods because we were concerned about what was happening in Australia. We, we all knew someone who was suffering during that period. You know, it was difficult times. And basically, we saw that this was a changing world. Um, more and more, uh, it's becoming high tech. And a lot of the institutions that we held to be strong and robust in Australia, they didn't seem to provide the kind of support that we needed in, in the modern era. And so we got together and we thought that, you know, looking to the future, we need to build something, some foundations in new institutions that can cope with the changing world that are built to last. And so we're looking over the long term, we're looking at the next 10, 20 years, and in particular, we're concerned to ensure that we do what we can to protect the integrity of the scientific process. And further, we want to do what we can to uh, enshrine the democratic values that Australians have always enjoyed historically um, and that really define us as a nation. The, 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 the democracy, you know, Australia to the rest of the world. I mean, I'm from Wales originally, actually, Ross, uh, not, 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 not. Forgive me, sir. Postman uh, okay. Pat, my apologies. <laughs> that's okay. No, that's okay. But, you know, we look to Australia from, from the Northern Hemisphere. I've been here 30 years, but, you know, we look to Australia from the Northern Hemisphere as a, uh, as, as the light on the hill, that, that, that pillar of democracy uh, in a, in a world of widespread totalitarianism. It's, it, and, and this is one of the, key virtues of Australia is what brought me to Australia, the pluralistic multicultural society that that um, that, that um, is an example to the world. And, and these are the virtues that we seek to protect. Well, uh, tell us who uh, I've mentioned, uh, Professor Gigi Foster, uh, you are credited as being a founder 
who are the main rabble rousers in the conspiracy? Well, there's a few of us, but uh, probably uh, well, one one person that comes to mind is is Ramesh Thacker. Ramesh was the former uh, deputy to Kofi Annan at the United Nations. Uh, Kofi Annan being the Secretary General of the United Nations. Um, um, fellow Queenslander is is James Allen, who's professor of uh, law at uh, Queensland University. Um, we've also got. Um, Professor Paul Freiches, who's a professor of economics at the London School of Economics, uh, who's currently residing in Saudi Arabia. And um, I, I can't go without mentioning Arif Farad, uh, who's a GP in Melbourne, who is really very much the the inspirator of, uh, of, of the whole thing. He was the guy who got us all together. He was fearless in his communication, um, really dogged and he really contributed enormously to getting us all together. And, and um, you know, there's uh, so many other people I could mention. Julie Sladden, um, you know, um, uh, Robert, uh, Robert Brennan. Um, uh, look, I, I, the, the, we, we, I think there's 45 um, people there. So so all those wonderful guys, if I've, I've mentioned your name directly, um, we're really, I really appreciate all the work you're doing. So, um, you know, you've got a mixture um of science and freedom it's a broad canvas you begin with um you've got a mixture of sort of got you know economists in there you've got a couple of guys who are sort of homeschooling authorities you've got lawyers you're pretty uh rich in medical uh clinical uh talent um, who were the ones for you over the two days? There's often the case that you find the breakout star or the unexpected person who just connects uh, yeah. with their audience um, in the way then I think uh, Barack Obama did at a particular uh, DNC conference, just gave the speech that connected. Uh, who Who really... Who made the deepest impression on you in the flesh? I presume in many, some of these people you will have met and worked with closely before, but many of them you would have been meeting in the flesh for the first time. Who was most memorable? Well, it, it's it's hard to single people out, but if I'm going to name, if you force me to name two people, uh, I, I I think uh, Paul Paul Freiters, the uh, from the London School of Economics, he's a larger than life character. Uh, it was the first time I met him. Um, I've only ever seen him on a Zoom session before, and um, you know he was uh, a very, very impressive individual who, with a good sense of humour, a good heart, real decency, and a real vision for the future. So, um, yeah, Paul was. What very was Paul's thesis? What was he on about? So Paul is working to establish a new form of university, one that uh, is working to. In, in empower uh, the students in areas of crit critical thinking. We're, we're trying to return to some of the old values of uh, university education, and this is a global global effort. This is this is, you know, Paul is um, setting this up, including people in um, Holland, the United States, and so forth. So it's a collaboration with some overseas organisations as well, and um, we want to try to 
return to some of the you know traditional teaching values that uh, we we saw at universities once upon a time. Uh, you know, there is a, I mean, there's a huge concern about um, the way universities are developing, in particular the rise of woke, uh, which is dominating many universities at the moment and interfering with um, freedom of speech and and um, and also even the scientific process because at the end of the day scientific process is a critical process you know you, the, the, without being able to criticize um the uh the narrative uh whatever that might be in relation to um then it's hard to progress science it's hard to for science to evolve so paul was paul was very impressive give us the other, surname again so our listeners can look him up Freiters, so F-R-I-J-T-E-R-S, Paul Freiters. Okay, very good. Okay, who's number two? Who gets the well, silver medal? Well, look, uh, she she's the hero medal. I I think that, uh, look, I hope she doesn't mind me talk, talking about this, but uh, someone who is amazing in the organization, she's tireless, she's, um, she's selfless, and her story was just so inspiring, is, is Julie Sladden. Julie is a, a GP in um, in Tasmania who's now uh, involved in politics as well, and um, basically um, she related her story um, in relation to her experience with breast cancer and you know what she what she had to go through with that and the you know the surgery the chemotherapy and how she recovered from it the strength of character you know it's inspiring it's an it was an inspiring story for for all of us to you know how to deal with adversity and overcome it very good so um you're still working as a gp do you see i i've heard quite a good report uh, from one of your patients who says you're actually a very good doctor oh well, uh, okay. Paid them a lot of money for that. <laughs> yes, yeah. You're seeing how how often do you see patients? Oh, usually about uh, well, well, usually about four days a week, and yeah. um, and I work, you know, um, probably about, average about six hours a day, four four to six hours a day, something like that. So yeah, so I'm pretty busy, pretty involved in um, in medical care. Um, I've always had a focus on preventative health. And as you rightly pointed out, I've got a fair bit of experience in genetics, in particular um, human genetics, um, which is something that you know I'm pretty passionate about because it can offer people a lot of insight into their potential problems downstream, which then we can uh, develop plans to try to prevent any progression towards that that sort of kind of illness. Do you have any? Um... You know, in some ways, I, I sometimes wonder uh, if it is a double-edged sword with genetics being one of the areas where science has taken the most extraordinary leap forward mm. uh, in the last, say, 20 years. And um, I think of the kind of US-UK collaboration uh, between I think Bill Clinton and Tony Blair were both engaged in the unraveling of the human genome um, yeah. and once we had cracked it um, we opened up for ourselves a kind of Aladdin's cave mm -hmm. of information not just about the individual today but about our 
genetic uh, ancestry and what we may or may not have uh, inherited. Um, I was with, uh, you know, we find some diseases particularly prominent uh, in some very distinct kind of genetic cohorts. On the one hand, it's uh, good to know. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I sometimes worry it creates this impression of control on the part of the species uh, that we we don't and may not ever really possess. Do you do you you're a lover of genetics and the human genome? Um, what do you think are the upsides and downsides of our recent scientific mastery we're acquiring? Oh, look, I, I think it's incredibly powerful. You're absolutely right. Every, every test has got its drawbacks, um, and I think the key is. Key with genetics is to present the information to the patient in a way that's enabling, that's positive, you know, try to help them. I, I liken it to crossing the road, you know. When you cross the road, you look to see where the traffic is. Now, you can't stop the road, the traffic coming down the road, but what you can do is determine uh, the safe path across the road so you can minimize your risk by of being hit by one of those trucks coming down the road. So, so it gives you an insight as to what steps should be taken. And... Um, Look, I, I did a lot of work on this, trying to work out solutions. I, I, I worked I, I worked to try to ensure I understood the solutions before I embarked upon the the, the road to genetic testing. And and uh, it's no good giving anyone information if they can't use that information constructively in their lives to protect themselves and, and prevent disease. Uh, and that, that takes a, a lot of understanding and took a lot of time, but I've been doing it for, you know, over 20 years now. And... Um, and um, I'm, you know, the feedback I've had from my patients has always been really positive. And um, I think we've achieved quite a lot with over that period of time with, with the genetics. I, I'm not saying it's perfect. It's never going to give us a perfect answer, but it can be very empowering if it's delivered in an effective way. So what is David Richards' uh, genetic uh, map? Are you just bog Welsh or is there any other <laughs> element uh, in well, your history? Well, good question. I, 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 my, my mother's part Jewish. I, I say that. I teased her. I said, I said, uh, that's that's what that's why you shop at Crazy Clark's. I said, and um, and uh, she she didn't like that. But um, yeah, there's uh, mostly Welsh. I'm 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 uh, I, I, I've got a very strong Celtic uh, genome. Um, but, you know, part Neanderthal, of course, uh, as most of most most of us Welsh are. That's 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 what drives us to play rugby. Um, but uh, but basically, um, my genome, unfortunately, Ross, is a bit of a mess. Um, I've got uh, genes that are linked to bowel cancer, and I've got genes that are linked to dementia, and uh, both of these things are in my family. But you know, but knowing about it allows me to take steps to try to diminish um, my risks. You know, so I, I I'm I'm conscious of it. You know, um, you know, eating a semi-vegetarian diet. I exercise regularly. Do a bit of triathlon, cycling, and so forth. So, so those kind of things uh, have a powerful influence on the risks of developing dementia. I even went to Okinawa a few years ago uh, to understand, you know, the longest-lived people in the world, to understand about what it was about their communities that uh, in, in allowed them to live a healthy life into much older age and. Um, you know, some intriguing things. Um, you know, they eat a lot we've of We've got just a second, Dave. We've got about 90 seconds. So give us the short list of the most intriguing Okinawa lessons. Okay. Lots of greens, lots of eggs, 
um they 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 sit on the floor and so they sit and standing all the time because they got they sleep on futons so the movement constant movement and beautiful uh, decent society where everybody cares about each other which is what we wanted us to play all right very good all right i'll take it uh good advice from the gp dr david richards uh, I'm told is an outstanding clinician, a guy who actually cares about health uh, rather than just medicine, um, a healer uh, rather than a drug dealer, uh, a member of the rabble rousing group, Australians for Science and Freedom. Uh, congratulations on the conference this weekend. Um, Thank you, Russ and good luck in your mission we on the ross cameron show its audience my mother and her book club are right behind you god bless and go well thank you thank you very much indeed there you go ladies and gentlemen all over this sunday night see you next week it's been good to have your company